1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice.
0: Hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James. Today on the podcast, I'm interviewing Senator Andrew Bragg. He's currently the chair of the Senate Select Committee for the Environment and Communications. Now, prior to this current committee, he was the chair of the Australia as a Technology and Financial Centre Centre Select Committee. And they were really looking at crypto and digital currencies, debanking and all the things. He's really bullish on the idea of crypto and he thinks DeFi is exciting and all that stuff. We have a good chat in depth about his work as the chair of the committee uh, in relation to cryptocurrencies. And we look at some of the recommendations that uh, that committee have formed to give to the treasurer to consider. Now, crypto is hot out there at the moment, guys. It is wild. I've been pretty vocal in the past that, you know, we need to just calm down and chill out but I think it's time that I start to have a conversation with you, my audience, without the dogma, without the, hey, everyone, go buy $10,000 of Dogecoin or SHIB and we'll go to the moon baby and all be billionaires. Like, no, that's all crap. That is all speculation and gambling. I want to now have a serious chat without the dogma, just about crypto as an asset class in the future. The government are very keen to regulate this. As you'll hear in this interview, the CBA are now getting serious about cryptocurrency. The ATO are talking about it. There's NFTs now. That will be a thing of the future. One of the biggest companies in the world have just flagged that, hey, we're going into the metaverse. So it is a real thing, but I want to start to have just a clear, calm, considered chat about this stuff. And actually, if you do want to learn the basics of cryptocurrency, what's an exchange? What's a wallet? What is the blockchain? Please come to the webinar. It's only $11. I asked all of you in the Facebook group. If you want me to get a sponsor and make it cheap, and more than 90% of you said that, so I'm trying to find a relevant sponsor. But again, if you know what the blockchain is, if you know what crypto is, if you know what a wallet is or a cold storage thing is, all that stuff, don't come because it's really one 101 for beginners. There's a link in the show notes. I also asked the senator what he thinks about Afterpay, Finfluencers, and then at the end of the episode, I went in and talked to him about The environment, coal, cop, all the things. So thank you, Senator Andrew Bragg, for coming on My Millennial Money. Finally, if you don't know much about politics or care, Senator Andrew Bragg, he's a Liberal Party member out of Sydney. Uh, So he represents New South Wales in the federal government Senate. So on the news you see the big green chamber. That's the lower house. The Senate is the upper house who actually pass the legislation and that's the red house and that's where the serious stuff happens so the green stuff and all the crap you see on tv that's just the lower house and they're just debating legislation to see if we can pass it to send up to the upper house to vote on it i think anyway enjoy we'll talk soon bye andrew bragg thank you so much for joining me on my millennial money Hi Glenn, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks so much for joining us today. I just want to start with some bread and butter. As a senator, what do you do day to day? Because a lot of us out in the world, like politics just can go over people's head.
2: Mm. Well, I mean, the job is to make sure that you're focused on the people and what's really important to people at the moment, I think is jobs, making sure that uh, people can get an education, all the basic stuff. So, As a backbencher in the government, I focus on what I can control and I do my fair share of listening to people about, um, you know, what they're worried about, um, how the federal government can help them. So it's a bit like being a professional listener and then a professional advocate.
0: I think there's a bit of a a misunderstanding out there because the crap that we see on TV with all the politicians, it's like, and it's us and them and, you know, those three main parties. But, I mean, in the committees that you're on, like particularly the the current one uh, with the environment and communications and then the one that will also talk about, uh, Australia as a technology and financial centre, like there's a lot of good work that happens across party lines on these committees, right?
2: Look, the worst thing about politics is question time because that is a supreme waste of taxpayer funds. I mean, it's all theatre, it's all rubbish, The best part of parliament is working on the committees where we do deep dives into big issues and it's usually bipartisan. So Mm. recently, as you said, we did a review into cryptocurrency, which I chaired, and that was pretty much a bipartisan affair.
0: Why did you put your hand up to be on that committee and chair it? Do you have a personal interest in cryptocurrency or anything like that? Do you hold crypto yourself? Because I was looking on the asset register just to do some research. And, you know, while you have to disclose that you've got a Westpac bank account, for example, like there's no disclosure there that I've got a wallet with Coinbase or Binance, you know. So, I guess at the very outset, it's great at the moment, right?
2: Well, so there's two questions. Here. The first question is, um, I put up my hand to run this inquiry because I thought it was something that the parliament should do. It was my initiative. I worked with the Treasury, Josh Frydenberg, to get the support to do the inquiry. The inquiry started out as a review into buy now, pay later and fintech issues. And then it went into crypto. And it was just because I thought it was important. I thought, that there was one in five Australians with exposure to crypto. There were lots of Australians with buy now, pay later accounts. And the government should look at the system, needed to have a look at it. The second part of the answer is um, when you're a poly, you've got to have this thing called an interest register. So people know if you, you've got conflicts of interest. Uh, and I think that's important because you want people in public public office to be working only for the public, not for their own personal interests. Um, And so all my register is up to date. I don't have any uh, direct exposure to any cryptocurrency. I am talking to my financial planner about getting some exposure in my super. And I am happy to discuss that if you want to.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd be more than happy. Uh, I mean, lots there. But first, I just want to touch on this buy now, pay later stuff. When is it going to get regulated?
2: What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I have to say to you that I think a credit card can do a lot more damage than a buy now, pay later account for many people. And I don't think we should be running a protection racket for for banks. I don't think we should be uh, giving banks a monopoly over... People's financial options. So I think for many people, Buy Now Pay Later has been a liberation from bank credit cards. I'd have to agree and
0: also challenge, and I'd appreciate your view. Like, my prediction is, and we've started to see it, we're just going to see Buy Now Pay Later instead of being four easy installments. The language will start to change. 52 easy installments, you know, 100 easy installments. Like, at what point does it? just become a credit product flying under the radar?
2: Well, they have to get a uh, financial services licence to start with. They have to comply with their legal obligations, including their design and distribution obligations. So they've got to say, okay, this is a product which is designed for these people and here's how we're going to manage the risks. So they have to meet all their obligations under the Corporations Act. They can't just – I mean, it's not, it's not unregulated. Mm. So um, – Uh, But we, we don't want to have a static financial system, which is controlled by a couple of major institutions. We want people to have access to the best options, new ideas, lower prices. I mean, I think that's really important.
0: Yeah. And I guess putting my flag on the hill is, you know, for those that are new to this podcast, and Andrew, you haven't really heard me before, like, I think you can manage your money without any debt products. So none of them are needed. And more times than not, people end up in trouble. So I guess that's my flag on the hill with that.
2: Well, we don't give, I mean, I, uh, to start with, we don't give unlicensed financial advice. So I'm not here to do, to do that in any way, shape or form. Yeah. But um, certainly I would say that as a policymaker, someone who's elected to look at the nation's financial policies, um, I do think that we want Australians to have the most choices that they can make. I don't think we should be trying to perpetuate the past, where you've had people being slaves to banks, almost like serfs to banks, over the course of their their, their working lives. So, just don't think it's healthy.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you take of um, you know Instagram, TikTok, and all the um, the finfluencers and talkers out there, um, you know, sharing their money story and giving their money tips?
2: Well, as I said, I don't support unlicensed financial advice. So um, I am—I would be concerned if people were taking financial advice from some of these unlicensed persons. <laughs> and I hate to sound like a government person, but I am a government person, Glenn. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, I have to say that I, I do think that for, I think financial advice is, is a good thing. Uh, I mean, I think that there's been a lot of very bad financial advice. There's been a lot of dodgy and crook stuff that's gone on. And now there's been a lot of reform. Mm. And now financial advice is too expensive. And a lot of people can't afford to to access it. And I'm worried about that because I think, you know, middle income, lower income people can really benefit from, from some financial advice. So I think we've probably pushed the needle too far and it's too expensive for
0: for average income earners. Yeah. And I actually, I'm a bit of the view that, you know, in the financial influence ecosystem, and I'm one of them, like I pay for a general advice license so I can give a legitimate general advice warning. Uh, I was a former financial advisor for over 12 years and, you know, gave that up to do this. I just think it, it needs to come a time where if you are a Finfluencer or influence online and you're earning a living over a certain threshold or a certain amount of influence, like yeah. that's now a serious operation. But if it's just someone with a few thousand followers sharing their investing journey, I think we're barking up the wrong tree.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's also the issue of, I'm not sure exactly who you mentioned before, but if it's Beyonce or someone who's in the United States giving stock tips or Bitcoin tips on TikTok, I mean- I mean, the Australian the Australian uh, government and our laws are not extraterritorial, so we're not going to be able to capture that, right? So, um, I think there's a few there's a futility with some of this stuff because it's it's a bit like trying to ban online gambling. I mean, I've always thought that that was going to be a hard thing to do um, because if you can access it online, then um, you can do it. And look, I, I'm you know I'm I'm a libertarian in the sense that I mean, I don't think government should be trying to ban things. I just think that's childish. I'm not I'm not into the I'm not into the nanny state.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's beneficial. Like if a young person, you know, see someone online and they do something, and it's not financial advice, but they copy them, whether it's some guy or girl giving really bad crypto advice and they lose a couple hundred dollars, it's probably better they learn that lesson with a small amount of money, right, <laughs> than, you know, get to the point where they're in their 60s and and go down the, you know, the high-risk venture and, and lose everything.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, I think it's a... Uh, at the moment, crypto is totally unregulated apart from mm. a small piece of regulation which applies to the crypto market exchanges. Mm. Uh, and so that's why we put forward a... Comprehensive reform plan, so that if people are in cryptocurrency in Australia, then they can have recourse if things go wrong. Now, at the moment, if things go wrong, you're you're in you're in the soup. Mm. Uh, and I, I just think it's too the volume and the level of interest in it is too big to ignore. We can't just leave it to be unregulated.
0: Yeah, and the problem is like regulation isn't always the answer. Like you know, storm, financial was operating under regulation, right?
2: Well, I mean, I think that you, as you know, they were breaking the Mm. laws. And, you know, you can have the best financial advice laws in the world, but unless they're enforced, then the laws are meaningless. So you have to have a corporate cop, and I've been critical of ASIC, which is a corporate cop Mm. that's actually prepared to prosecute people who do, do the wrong thing because... Unless unless financial company executives are prosecuted, then they will break the law. Mm. That is human nature. So yeah. um, we actually need to get a few examples here, which I think we're getting now more than we were getting maybe 10 years ago. But, yes, the answer is good laws and law enforcement. So,
0: all right, so let's talk about the, uh, the Senate Committee on Australia as a Technology and Financial Centre, like you made yep. the tweet recently that the DeFi potential is so huge and you've got a vision to capture the potential but also manage the risks. Yep. So how do we do that?
2: Well, I mean I think the whole idea of DeFi is very exciting. The idea hmm. that you can you can engage with peers, you can trade with peers, you don't need to go through a you know, a major bank to do do something, I think is very exciting and very democratic. Mm. So we need to make sure we have a regulatory system which protects consumers but also incentivizes investment in Australia. Mm. So that's what we need to try and do and that's what the, the Senate's plan proposes to do and I'm hoping that it will be adopted in large part by Josh Frydenberg.
0: So the first recommendation, and I'm not going to read them all because, yep. you know, we don't have all day The committee recommends that the Australian government establish a market licensing regime for digital currency exchanges, including capital adequacy, auditing and responsible person tests under the treasury portfolio. So, as an example, um, if there's a crypto exchange um, and there's two that come to mind at the moment, one of them is Coinbase. I believe they're Australian. I personally use them. There's another Australian one out of Queensland. I believe they're called Swift X. So, they're the kind of two main Australian exchanges. Are we talking about regulating those exchanges? Yes. And as a practical example, would that be, you know, as part of the regulation, there is some type of APL that they can use within the regulation? And for those listening, that's like an approved type of coin list or something like that?
2: That's an interesting point, Glenn. Um, what I had in mind was that those exchanges that you mentioned and exchanges like Independent Reserve and Coinjar that have sought and received licences in Singapore and the UK as Australian companies would have an Australian licensing system where they would have to have, uh, meet capital requirements to put money aside, have to meet uh, fit and proper person tests, they would have to have proper processes and protocols in order to get a licence, um, and they might have to have some arrangements that govern their use of products as well, in effect. Mm. I think that's, that's essential. We have to have that. I mean, one of the reasons we have to have it is because that's what they have in the UK and Singapore, and unless we have it, then those businesses won't, won't be here. And have you talked
0: uh, much with your counterparts in those countries to see how they implemented those licensing regimes for crypto? Uh,
2: a little bit, but more, more in the US where there's yeah. a bit more uh, crossover. Um, what they did in the UK and Singapore, I mean, they're both common law countries, uh, very similar legal system. I mean, more, more we have more in common legally with Singapore and the UK than we do with the US, strangely enough, um, that... They they establish these systems under the treasury portfolio, so they have financial services regulator, you know, accountability. Um, and so, I think we should we, we should follow that 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 approach. I mean, I see it as as financial regulation. That's what mm-hmm. I see it as.
0: So, my mind just goes bonkers with this, and I, I guess you've got to start somewhere, <laughs> and that's why I thought you know maybe there is some type of APL thing because realistically. There's a lot of hype and a lot of crap going on out there at the moment in crypto land. And I've kind of stepped away from it or not near it for a while, but it is time now that me, I think as a conservative money commentator, you know, it's, I really want to start to put my voice behind it. So there's two things that are happening. There's one thing that's happening, which is we know that it is the future in some capacity. And then on the other side, there's this big punting thing and let's find these startup coins that no one's heard of, get in on them and hope Elon tweets it and we become billionaires overnight, right? So, there's two things happening here.
2: Yeah.
0: When going down this rabbit hole uh, for myself, like I bought coins that weren't on an exchange. I put 100 bucks in a coin. It was a startup coin. They're like, "Yep, yeah, do this and then we'll airdrop you the coins and all this stuff. And it didn't happen. The website's not up anymore. It was basically a scam. Yeah. So how do we protect people with this legislation from just finding some startup coin almost on the gambling scene of crypto and the punting and the speculation scene?
2: Well, there's a couple of things I'd say here. The first thing I'd say is we approached the report from the the sense that there was um, economic benefit. And utility of having the technology in the economy. So, cryptography, uh, distributed ledger technology, blockchain. There is utility in having that in the economy. So we approach it from that perspective, not from the personal investment perspective. So, sure. I, I'm not going to get into you know giving people personal advice about this. It's not it's not appropriate. But I would say that. Um, If people want to buy and sell and trade Bitcoin and do all this sort of stuff, that's up to them. Um, I think it would be a mistake to focus on that for the economy because there is great disruption that can come, that can help consumers if we have this technology embraced in our economy. Now, you know, I think Napoleon said the English were a nation of shopkeepers. Australia might be a nation of investors, right? So -hmm. there's An obsession about the the personal investment component here, Glenn. Mm. But I think it's a mistake. So we want to focus on what the economic benefit is here, not not what the personal investment component is. On the less of the personal investment component,
0: do you think for, I guess, trustees of super funds would have more confidence to have an exposure to, say, Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other kind of top five coins for their members knowing that, hey, if we put some money behind this asset class, there is some protection for our members because I'd imagine super funds aren't going out there in the dark corners of the internet like I am having a snoop around.
2: Well, I think the super funds would benefit from having the regulatory framework embedded, um, which would give them all sorts of recourse if things go wrong. I mean, effectively what we've said is that there should be a, a regulatory system for markets a regulatory system for custody. I mean, if you had those things in place, then the super funds, I'm sure, would have much more confidence in putting some of their portfolio into crypto.
0: Mm. I'll read one of the other recommendations. Recommendation six, the committee recommends that the capital gains tax CGT regime uh, be amended so the digital asset transactions only create a CGT event when they genuinely result in clearly definable capital gain or loss? You ought to expand on that.
2: Well, I think and as a liberal, I was always looking for an opportunity to recommend a tax cut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, that's what we've recommended, that basically the way that the capital gains tax laws work is they work like crypto is share trading. Mm. But crypto is actually more probably more like currency trading, um, and in some cases where there's, you know, NFTs or non-fungible tokens being swapped between people and organisations, it's not like anything else we know. Mm. So the tax laws, we want uh, to reflect that fact that it is different and we think it should be a tax point only where there is a demonstrable gain or loss.
0: Mm.
2: Has there been any chats
0: And you probably won't answer behind closed doors in governments that um, a move, you know, if we want to be a leader in this space around the world, I mean, El Salvador has just adopted Bitcoin to, um, you know, to use. And I've I've been saying for years, is it worth anything if you can't settle a government debt with a cryptocurrency? Like, then it's always got to be pinned back to an Australian currency, for example, if we want to um, spend it. Uh, particularly with the government. Has there been any chats about doing something at a government level?
2: Well, we, we're we not going to take economic policy lessons from El Salvador, but there's a couple of No, I wouldn't suggest that. <laughs> uh, I mean, the first point is that El Salvador doesn't have its own currency. So they've, they've had the US dollar up until recently. Now they've got Bitcoin. Um, the benefit for people, especially low-income people in El Salvador, is they can now get money in and out of El Salvador, and there's there's a big diaspora in the United States uh, at a virtually low or no price, no cost, whereas before the international banking system was charging them very high margins of 15 20% on their transfers. So they were making it like bandits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a really big improvement. That's one tangible thing that... Bitcoin in El Salvador has been able to do so. That's quite exciting. Um, Australia is different. Australia has its own currency; it's the sixth most current, most traded currency on earth. It's a strong currency. It's a good currency. So we're not going to ha- we're not going to adopt Bitcoin no. in place of the Australian dollar. But what we might do is we might we might issue a retail central bank digital currency, and we recommended that the Treasury do a review of that. And I think we need to look at. What does it mean if the Chinese government has its own retail CBDC and its own digital wallet? Um, And what happens if that digital wallet is taken up by the, you know, one and a half million Chinese Australians? What does that mean? So we, Mm -hmm. we have to look at what sort of strategic and economic issues need to be addressed in terms of what the government offers because, I mean, the point here, Glenn, is if you are uh, the government, so if you, if you look at the transactions that happen in Australia today, I mean, the vast majority of the transactions are already digital transactions.
0: That's what I mean. Like, I, I don't use cash. I use my iPhone and tap everywhere. Like, it wouldn't matter to me if it's Australian dollar or, you know, Australian crypto.
2: Correct. So we've got to look at these things. The Reserve Bank has been bad in a sense that it has been unwilling to be as open as they should be, and I don't think that's a reflection on them, but it's more a reflection of the fact that they shouldn't have all this power. Mm. I mean, they should have independence over monetary policy, not over payments policy. I mean, payments policy is now a big deal, big deal in terms of its geopolitical impact, but also its economic impact. I mean, in the future, Prime Ministers and Treasurers will talk about payments policy as one of the big things. In the past, Prime Ministers and Treasurers have never discussed payments policy. I mean, partly partly this is a response to the uh, big tech becoming such a big feature of our democratic society. I mean, Mm. you know, Apple is talking about becoming a bank effectively. Facebook is going to become a a currency. So... Mm. I mean, unless we have a serious policy for payments in Australia, um, Silicon Valley will will eat it all.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's it. Like, I don't suggest that, you know, you hear stories in in the news that companies are giving their staff option to be paid with Bitcoin. I mean, I think that's lunacy because at the point, you know, one day you could be paid 20% less than last week. The other day you could be paid 5% more than the week before. Like, it's just not.
2: It's just not there yet. Well, I mean, that's a matter for them. But we've got to have a – I mean, the country's got to have a plan for all this. We can't just sit there, you know, hoping for the best. We've got to Mm. do a lot more work on these issues than we have in the past.
0: So the committee recommends in recommendation four that the Australian government establish a decentralised autonomous organisation company structure. Is that what we just talked about just in – Basic language. What does that mean?
2: Okay. so what it means is, if you want to have DeFi, and DeFi is about uh, using the you know, the blockchain to facilitate new ideas, new products, such as um, rather than me going to the bank to get some money to invest in something, I could come to come to you through uh, through or peer to peer decentralized finance product. Uh, without all the intermediation and what we've recommended is that that, that could be conducted under uh, Australian law under a new company structure. Mm-hmm. In the old days the mining companies used to have their own structures called no no liability mining companies and some of those I think are still in the ASX but it's just saying look we have a new company structure so we, 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 so we have more DeFi in Australia than in other countries. So I think it's Part of this, Glenn, is keeping up with the Joneses, if that, that makes mm. sense. That
0: mm.
2: Singapore and the UK have, got the, have done, done the most work here in terms of developing a framework for crypto. The US state of Wyoming has done the most work in terms of DeFi. So we, what we're trying to do with this inquiry, what we try to do is to say, okay, if we want to be a crypto hub and we want to protect people, but we also want to get the investment into Australia, here's all the stuff we need to do.
0: Yeah, I think it, it's it's so good that we are looking at this because Australia is such an early adapter of technology. I mean, when I first had my Apple Watch, I, kid you not, visited Silicon Valley, you know, where all this crap is thought of, like all the Apple stuff, and I couldn't use my Apple Watch for Apple payments. All the Americans were freaked out that I had my card on my watch. And, you know, I think we've just got such an agile I guess, mindset as a, a young, modern so- like economic society that we should take advantage of this stuff. In recommendation three, you talked about undergoing a token mapping exercise to determine the best way to characterize various types of digital assets and tokens in Australia. I mean, what's the deal with that? Because are we talking about tokens that just apply to Australia or every token on the planet. Because that's a big exercise, or are you just doing categories.
2: So, I think there's potentially different tokens, right? So, we think the treasury should do a mapping exercise where you can cat- categorize your various coins, your non fungible tokens, your tokens in general, right? Stable coins, whatever else, and yeah, and then basically say, okay, you know, these are commodities, these are financial products, so on and so forth. So. That's what it's about. Just setting out a bit of a, a sensible framework uh, from which to regulate the industry. What was the learning curve like for you and the committee members? Like, all this is just wild. Pretty steep for me. I mean, I think we went we went into places that the Senate doesn't usually go. We spoke to people that we we probably wouldn't usually speak to, which was really good. I mean, and that's that's the best part about the Senate committees is you uh, you, you get. You get deep on something, and then you try and lift up and make recommendations about reform. And so, I think it was a very—it's a very yeah—it was a tough learning curve, but it's one of the most rewarding things I've done.
0: Mm. So, what do you like? What happens from now? Like, you've the committee is effectively wound up because the report's finished. Is that what the process is?
2: Yeah. So, we've recommended half a dozen crypto changes and a couple of others, now the report is with the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, and he is also considering another inquiry which reported called the the Farrell Review into payments. Yeah. And so at some stage I'd expect he will respond to those two inquiries. And once government has a policy, then the Treasury starts consulting on how to legislate these things. So that's the next step. There's an election next year. My sense is there's lots of time to get moving on these things. So um, I'm hopeful we can deal with some of it in, in the next month or so.
0: Given the nature of the Senate and the, these committee recommendations, if there's a different government that's formed next year, are all these uh, committee, or is the committee works done in vain?
2: Uh, look, I mean I, I mean, I don't want to be partisan here, but I think that would depend on. So, if we, if we were voted out, I mean, that would depend on what the Labour Party wanted to do. Uh, my sense is Labour has shown pretty minimal interest in these issues. So, yeah, it might not be good.
0: Mm. But I guess it's the start of a very long process, nevertheless. Like, it's got to start somewhere, right? The conversation has to start at a government level. Yeah.
2: Well, look, I, I, and I think, yeah, you know, I just, you know, I'd refer your listeners to, if they're interested in this, I'd refer them to what Josh Frydenberg said when he released the, the payments review, the payroll review a few months ago, mm. where he made some very strong statements that, uh, you know, Australia will run our policies here, not, not Silicon Valley. Mm. And, of course, you know, our government has a track record here of taking on Google, taking on Facebook, making them pay for journalism, putting in place the Online Safety Act, uh, looking at this stuff. So, yeah, I think, you know, as I said, I don't want to be partisan here, Mm. but I think we have done some stuff that perhaps people were not expecting us to to do. And so um, I'm confident that if we are re-elected, that a lot of this report could be implemented within 12 months.
0: Okay. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come right back and I'll ask Andrew about the environment and... Yeah, just on a basic human level, like I'm a guy in my garage. Are we just like getting random topics and putting them in random committees, or is there a link between communications and the environment, or am, am I missing something here? Ah,
2: uh, well, I mean, you want me to explain how the Senate works? I mean, how long have you got? I mean, your uh, listeners will be listeners will be here for days. Look, I look. I think the the, the creation of the Senate committees, which gives people terrific. Oversight and scrutiny over what the government does mm. has been very good for Australia. The Communications and Environment Committee cluster is a broad cluster, right? I mean, um, the ABC has little to do with, you know, the policies on emissions reduction. So they are a bit random, but that's that's how it rolls. Mm. And at the moment, we've got an I'm chairing an inquiry into the ABC up, we just had Senate estimates where we focused heavily upon how we were going to get to net zero.
0: Mm. So, you know, with the environment and, you know, COP just happened and all that stuff, like, I'm not a journalist, like, I'm just a podcaster. Like, do you reckon Australia, like, you see what the the media says, right? It's not a loaded question. I don't know what you're going to say. Like, did Australia actually make a fool of themselves? Like, do you think? Oh, what the hell are we doing? Like, like, what's the go? Like, all the reports are like Australia—they're not committing to, you know, reducing coal or changing their their
2: stance and speeding things up. Like, what's the go? Well, I don't think COP was as successful as we'd hoped. Mm. Um, India and some other countries are saying that they're going to keep on emitting greenhouse gases. Um you know, in a gross sense, until 2070. But Australia has committed to net zero, mm. 2050 or maybe before. So we are um, one of the more ambitious nations, actually, um, given the composition of our economy and the composition of our exports. So we we might be able to accelerate our short-term commitments by 2030, but let's see. But certainly... I think, um, the, look, the Australian media like to ham it up and I think that's what happens in every country.
0: Mm. So the remit of, I guess, what you're looking at with the environment, like there was no real need for you to go to COP to um, be a part of any of that stuff and talk with people well, on the ground or is it a bit of a show fest? It's a show.
2: It's, it's a talk fest and it's yeah. for, you know, CEOs and big wigs and, I mean, the, and Prime, Minister went, the Prime Minister went... Um, <laughs> The, Saw Mal uh, up there.
0: He was hanging around.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And then, um, and, you know, the minister was there. So, you know, I mean, I was asked to go, but it wasn't something that I was able to do easily. And mm. um, as I said, I think these things are led by the head heads of government. I'm not the head of government. Mm.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, it was, it was just funny because I think even this week, like, cops over and all that stuff, and Barney's back out selling coal. Yeah. Um, so, is that just a wolf whistle or dog whistle to his electorate to say, i got you, baby? I like, I don't know. Because like, I'm just a guy who doesn't really, I don't know. It's just, I just want to chew the fat with you and show people, I guess, you know, I guess what a politician might be like not trying to do a 60-second or six-second grab or something.
2: Well, look, I mean, what I'd say about Cole is that after 2050, no one's going to buy it, really. I mean, the mm. RBA data shows that the the demand for it will f- start falling off from mm. pretty much uh, the end of this decade. So there's no evidence that the market will collapse straight away. So I think for the foreseeable future, there will be uh, coal exported. But that's not being used for domestic energy generation. I mean, that is increasingly going to be provided by renewable energy. Um so, yeah, I mean, I'm going to spare, spare, spare you the talking points. I mean, the point is there will be bugger all coal use for domestic energy generation um, in the medium term, but there will still be coal being exported until the middle of the century. Mm. Um, but if the, if the demand falls off more quickly, then it will fall off. So, you know, we are, we are where we are. We're going to get to net zero. Um, I'm hoping we can get there before 2050, and it's, I think it's really important. So, But you can't go into one part of Australia and say one thing and say something else elsewhere. I mean, you, you, mm. you, you've got to make policies for the whole country. You can't talk out side of your mouth.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's the thing. And I, I've kind of loosely said, like, if we are going to turn the tap off coal longer term, maybe there needs to be some type of universal basic income at some point for those who are actually affected because
2: well, – well, no. I mean, I don't agree with that. I mean, I think that the the, the best solution for people who in heavy industry in places like the the Hunter mm. um, and Gippsland and you know, where there's been a lot of coal, Central Queensland, is to is to build more heavy industry, right? So, mm. for example, in Gippsland, where they've had um, historically a lot of coal, their coal power coal power power stations are closing, and they're building offshore wind, which employs hundreds of people. Thousands during during construction, and hundreds on the ongoing basis, and that's heavy duty industry, right? They're high paying jobs, quite like they're quite high paying jobs, you know, more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. That's what that's what you're going to see in the Hunter, um, or sorry, you know off off offshore, and on the South Coast, Illawarra region. So um, the solution is not government subsidies. The solution is government working with the private economy to build new heavy industries. Mm. because the new clean heavy duty industries will, will require those well-paying jobs.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a wild world. I was talking with a friend yesterday in finishing up, like he's got an eight-year-old and, you know, I don't know if you've got kids that are young.
2: I've got a couple of kids, yeah.
0: Yeah, they're young. Yeah. So, like, for example, your young kids, right? And i was saying to my mate, Tim, I'm like, your son Brody, when he grows up, he might end up being a, a boiler maker in some online world for a living and he goes, sits at his computer, goes into the metaverse, you know, does stuff. So, he could be a boilermaker or a ferrier or something like that, but it's all going to be online. So, the world's changing. It's, it's just a matter of, um, you know, when, not if.
2: Well, we've always been a dynamic country and, mm. and I'm confident that we will become a, a beneficiary of net zero, and I think we will export carbon abatement services. Uh, we will we will export our energy, um, including sun, like through the Sun Cable through Singapore, um, and we'll be an exporter of renewable energy. And we mm. will be, and we'll be providing those abatement services, which will make I think the regions uh, really you know quite wealthy in some parts. So um, we have got a lot to gain. We've got to be open minded about the transition. We've got to be honest about the transition. Uh, we can't tell lies to people. We've got to tell them about what are the trends for the demand on things like coal, and that's leadership. That's what leadership is. Leadership is not telling lies about the future.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Uh, did you want to leave on any final words of anything that you want to get across to our audience? Or
2: Well, I think, you know, um, if people are interested in, in the crypto stuff, they should let me know. They can drop me a line and senator.brag at aph.golf.au and um, you know if you're in New South Wales I'm at your service so just let me know
0: yeah no that's really good well thanks for putting up with um, someone who's not a journalist and is just a bit sloppy and having a chat And
2: <laughs> no it's good
0: thanks for your time available no, anytime good. if um, you're working on anything cool so Senator Andrew
1: Bragg thank you so much
0: main